welcome to the latest episode of The Unbalanced Notes, where the show is all about music and musicians. We're so happy to be here today under the quarantine times here in Dallas, Texas. It's sunny, it's beautiful, it's lovely, it smells nice. I am Brian Kluger, and I am joined by the man I love to make music with in life, Mark Chafferdini. How the hell are you, sir? I'm great as long as you pluck all six strings of my heart. I, I will pull those heartstrings daily. And we just have, we have a fantastic show on the Unbalanced Note today. We have a, we have this, this man, this, this legendary musician in film and music playing with all sorts of great acts around the world. He is Memphis-based, one of the coolest cities on the planet the steel cage champion of music, Scott Bomar. How are you? I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm liking this wrestling intro. You know, Memphis has a bit of wrestling history with uh, Jerry the King Lawler, Lawler. Jimmy Hart. A lot of, lot of wrestling history in Memphis. For sure. Great to be for here. Sure. <laughs> are, are, you, are you a big wrestling fan? You know, I'm I'm a big fan of the the old school wrestling. You know, when when the you know Memphis wrestling was in its prime with Waller and all those guys. You know, that was that was like the prime age to have been exposed to that. And it came on every Saturday morning after cartoons. And I went to uh, every Monday night at the Mid South Coliseum. They would wrestle and. I went to that a couple of times. So yeah, it was, uh, I actually even went to the studio taping a few times as well. So uh, yeah, I'm a, not, not as much now. I'll go back and go to YouTube and watch some of the old school matches, but uh, I love that stuff. I, I do too. I used to go in Dallas, the Sportatorium where Stone Cold was stunning uh, Steve Austin and used to watch that uh, for the Saturday morning shows. Those were fun. Uh, but you know, first off, you know, we're living in these crazy times. I just want to ask, uh, how are you doing in all of this? Are you doing all right? Yeah. I mean, I think like a lot of folks, when everything first started happening, there was, you know, no one really knew what was happening. It was a lot of confusion. And um, there's a, a soul artist named Don Bryant, a Memphis-based artist who I work with, uh, I've produced his last two albums and I, I'm his band leader band leader and my group, the Bo Keys, we're his backing band and we tour with him and we have a lot of dates booked. I mean, we had a tour in Australia in May and we were supposed to play in New York last night at City Winery. So we had all these dates, live dates booked. Do we have dates booked to the end of the year? And there's this sort of you know, are we going to be able to do these? Are we not going to be able to do these? And a lot of confusion about that. So it's been a little bit of a challenge to sort that out and get a feel for, you know, exactly what's going to happen and what's safe and what are the best practices during this time for everyone. And I think that's something, you know, everyone's dealing with right now. But uh, other than that, you know, I've gotten a lot of projects done around the house, a lot of cleaning, a lot of home, you know, repair type things taken care of that I've put off and uh, I've been uh, I've got a recording studio in Memphis downtown called electrophonic recording and that's where most of the score for Dolomite is my name was done but I also have a smaller setup at home where I do essentially my demos and occasionally I'll do some overdubs and things here 
and I've been working on kind of, you know, getting some stuff done so I can do more recording here. So I don't have to go to my big studio. So I've been, I've been getting a lot done. I've been doing some writing. That's been nice. I've also been uh, working my way through the Criterion collection. <laughs> oh, we love to hear that. The Criterion. There's some good music docs on that too. Yes, definitely. I, I love that. We're going to get to the Criterion because I want to know your list, uh, your Criterion list uh, shortly after. But yeah, I think that's what both Mark and I are doing. Just busy trying to work and working, cleaning, uh, I, the other day I took a lot of my 45 randomly and just started listening to them in the record, uh, turntable, uh, a lot of good stuff like that. But I want to ask Scott, you know, you're this, this excellent, this phenomenal, uh, musician who's done some excellent, uh, film scores. You've worked with, uh, great musicians over the years, but for you personally, where did it all begin? for with for you with music like was it you heard something on the radio was it your first instrument where where did it all begin for you memphis tennessee where i'm from and i've lived here my entire life you know this is a very musical city and um people my age you know their parents have a lot of times like really great record collections and a lot of times the record collections are very diverse and you know, in my house, you know, when I was a kid digging through my parents' records, I mean, they had jazz, country, R&B, soundtracks, soul music, you know, uh, Memphis garage bands, 45s. Um, so I just, I first got kind of exposed to music just around the house. There's always been really great radio in Memphis. There's kind of a history of that. So growing up, I heard a lot of really great radio and one thing I think that's a bit unique about Memphis is things, I think there's a little bit of, a little bit more cross-pollinization between genres here than maybe some other places. Because I remember radio stations when I was a kid, you know, they would play Detroit City by Bobby Bear, and then the next song would be Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave. There's just like a lot of, you know, a lot of cross-pollinization between genres that happen here that's really cool. Um, there was a club in Memphis in the eighties and nineties called the antenna club. It was like a, you know, in the, in that time, like every town, almost or every city had like its own kind of punk club. And, um, I started hanging out there when I was 15 and got exposed to all types of different bands, both really cool local bands and also, uh, you know, touring acts that would come through and, that's where I met a lot of musicians. That's where I kind of, you know, formed my very first band, which was called Impala, which is an instrumental band and kind of what led into all the film work and pretty much everything I've done. It all came through that band Impala. Well, that's the short version of kind of how I got into everything. Do you, do you remember the first instrument you picked up and where you bought it from and what you played your first song you learned? Uh, my first instrument was guitar. Um, at my grandmother's house, I was messing around one day, probably around fifth or sixth grade, and I looked under the couch and I saw this case. Like, what is this? And I like pulled it out from underneath the case. I mean, underneath the couch, and it was a really cool, like '60s Hagstrom electric guitar, like 
you know, red, really cool. And I saw it and it was like my uncle's guitar from when he was a teenager in the sixties. And I started messing around on that guitar. So that was the first instrument. I started off as a guitar player, uh, took lessons briefly around sixth grade, um, kind of learned some basics and then just started teaching myself and learning stuff from kids in the neighborhood that played. Um, and then, uh, a couple of years later, I wanted to be in a band and there were a million guitar players and no bass players. So I thought, well, you know, I could stick with guitar, but if I want to be in a band, if I played bass, I mean, I could be in three bands tomorrow. So I, uh, I made the decision to, to be a bass player. Um, and I love the bass. I, I really, I don't know. There was something about it, the tone I liked and its role in music. I'm curious because I've heard a few stories like that. Why, why the people are not gravitating towards bass, <laughs> but they end up playing bass. I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you're first starting out, when you're younger to play an instrument, you know, guitar and piano, you can you kind of accompany yourself, you know, you can play chords, but bass, I mean, you can play chords on bass, but really it's mostly, you know, single notes you're playing and it's not as interesting to, you know, sit around and accompany, you know, play with yourself on bass. It's just not probably since you can't play chords on the bass, it's probably not really an instrument you start off playing. I mean, I think the piano is probably the best place to start learning music, but you know, they always say that when you first start out playing music, you play other people's stuff until you find your own voice. What were you playing and what did you eventually, when did then, when do you think that that transition happened that you became Scott Bomar instead of, you know, punk alley bands? Hmm. Um, I mean, that's, I still love learning songs. I mean, every day I, I hear something, whether it's a, you know, I'm listening to a record and want to learn a song or some licks on a record or parts on a record or whether I'm watching a film and I hear like a motif or some instrumentation and a score and I'm like, oh, that's really cool. What, you know, what exactly is that? And I'll sit down and, you know, maybe record it on my phone and play it back so I can learn it. So I'm always like listening to things and, and learning music. So um, I still do that, but you know, at an earlier age, um, you know, again, it kind of goes back to Impala, uh, you know, I was like really inspired by Booker T and the MGs. Um, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, I really love, uh, Henry Mancini scores. Um, so Impala, you know, I was like learning, uh, you know, one of our first songs we had success with was a cover version of uh, the theme from Experiment and Terror, uh, Henry Mancini's theme. And we did kind of a, you know, our Memphis sort of instrumental surf garage band version of, of that theme. And it ended up getting licensed uh, by George Clooney when he did Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. Um, and that was kind of my beginning of, that was like my first big break into kind of the film world and I think led to a lot of other things, but I know I'm kind of getting away from your original question. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, I, um, I'm always learning things and listening to other things, but then incorporating it into what I do and coming up with 
sort of my original version that's inspired by um, other other work. Um, I think I've always that's all kind of always really been my process. So it's hard probably during, you know, Impala. And then after that group, I formed the Bokies. And then that was also around the time I started doing the film scores for Craig Brewer. So I'd say somewhere during all that is when I guess I evolved into the work I'm doing now. But but it's all kind of, it's, it's all very Southern though, would you say? Do you feel that it is Memphis originated or do you feel like it's a hybrid of everything that's taken you to this point in time? I'd say it's a hybrid. I mean, I'm definitely, um, you know, a product of, of Memphis music and something else I was going to mention when I was answering your last question. Um, I've had some really incredible mentors. Uh, one of them was a gentleman named Roland James, who was a session guitar player at Sun Records for Sam Phillips. He played on uh, this great instrumental by the saxophone player named Bill Justice, this instrumental called Raunchy. He played guitar on that, but he also played on like Billy Lee Riley's Flying Saucers Rock and Roll. He played on all the Jerry Lee Lewis cuts at Sun Records. And uh, he went on to become a producer engineer in the 60s. And uh, he he was the head engineer in the 90s and 2000s up until when he passed a few years back at Sam Phillips recording which is a studio that Sam Phillips started after he sold Elvis's contract and after you know eventually you know when he Sam Phillips had the success at Sun with Elvis and everything he in 1960 he built this really killer state-of-the-art studio or state-of-the-art in 1960 and that's called Sam Phillips Recording. It's still here in Memphis. They have like live echo chambers. It's all original. It's never really been changed. And uh, I do quite a bit of work over there. Killer studio. But Roland was the engineer there. And he was one of the first engineers I worked with when I f- first started recording. So I learned a lot from him. The other really big person in my life that was a mentor was the great producer, writer, instrumentalist, Willie Mitchell. And Willie Mitchell, he had uh, owned Royal Studios in Memphis, and he worked at High Records. He Willie had tons of killer, killer instrumental records out. His music, his instrumentals are so cool. I highly recommend everybody check those out. But he went on to start working with vocalist, and uh, I mentioned Don Bryant earlier, who I work with. Don was Willie's first singer, and then. Uh, you know, Willie went on to do Ann Peebles, Otis Clay, and uh, a lot of other artists, but most notably Al Green. Uh, Willie produced and co-wrote, you know, just about all that Al Green catalog. And that Al Green sound with the big fat snare drum and the horns, that's uh, that's the Willie Mitchell sound. So I, I worked over at his studio for a couple of years, and that's where my group, the Bo Keys, recorded our first album. And I um I got to work on two Al Green records over there. I can't stop, and um, the Al Green records. Uh, everything's okay, and I can't stop. There were two two records that Willie did on Al Green for Blue Note in the two thousands, and I got to work on those as a as an assistant engineer. But you know, being with Willie and seeing how he put together an Al Green record from top to bottom, um. I mean, it, it was amazing, and I got to see him, like, 
write the songs. He would sit at his desk with like a little Casio keyboard and like mess around with these chords and these really beautiful voicings. And then he'd get with Al and work on the lyrics. And then he got with this great arranger, musician named Lester Snell, who actually played keyboards on the Dolomite Is My Name score that I did. And Lester got with Willie and wrote out all the arrangements. Then they had the rhythm section come in and cut all the tracks with Al doing the vocals. Then they had the strings and horns, background vocals, percussion, and then mixed it. I mean, I got to see you to go through the process with Willie, you know, on two Al Green records. So seeing, you know, experiencing firsthand Willie Mitchell producing two Al Green records, like I could not do what I've been doing if I hadn't, if I didn't have that experience with Willie. And I think probably the Dolomite is my name score. It's probably one of the best, I think probably most, uh, kind of shows what I learned from him, especially some of the cues that have bigger instrumentation. Like I'm going to kill Dolomite and some of the ones that are, are bigger. Um, I would say, uh, definitely have his influence and we actually recorded the strings horns and the timpani at royal studios at willie's studio willie's now deceased unfortunately but uh his son boo mitchell runs the studio royal another amazing Memphis studio that is uh that is quite the story and just getting to work with these people uh and and you know including al green i mean do you just like sit and just kind of take it all in constantly learning from everyone else as well definitely i mean that's that's been one of the really you know amazing things about um you know being being in memphis um just all the great musicians here and and all ages all genres you know there's just so many great musicians here and I've gotten to learn from a lot of really great people. There's a, another studio in Memphis called Ardent. That's uh, you know really another really famous studio and probably most known for um, those the Big Star records that were done there. But also uh, ZZ Top did a lot of recording there. If you guys have seen this recent ZZ Top documentary, they interview Excellent. a guy named Terry Manning. Yeah, it's yeah. such a great documentary. You guys are in Dallas, so you'd really appreciate that one too. Um, <laughs> But uh, Terry Manning, who they interview quite a bit in that documentary, is uh, a, a friend and someone I've gotten to work with as well. And he uh, he's another, you know, really amazing product to Memphis. And he's developed a lot of really cool recording gear with a gentleman in Oxford, Mississippi named Frank Lacey. And I have quite a bit of their gear that they've made over the years together. And that's equipment that got you you know is used quite a bit and you know in what i do nice and i've i read that somewhere you've also worked in some capacity uh with cindy lopper can you talk a little bit about that yeah um i love cindy that was the thrill of a lifetime to get to do that record um i can't quite remember when it was it's probably been about eight years ago now um I have uh, a friend named Jed Katrancha. He works for Downtown Music, which is a great uh, music publishing company. And uh, my friend Jed, uh, he called me up one day and he said, hey, uh, I've got uh, a friend in the office and uh, she manages someone. I can't tell you who it is, but they're 
interested in making a blues record. And I've been telling them about you and I was wondering if you could send over some of the more like bluesy things that you've produced. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I had no idea who it was. And so I put together some MP3s of some music I'd made. And uh, a couple of days later I checked in, I'm like, Hey, I'm kind of, you know, checking in to see what they thought. And he goes, Oh man, they loved it. Um, they want to, you know, talk to you. And by the way, it's Cindy Lauper. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I love her. Um, I've always loved her. And this also ties back into wrestling. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and she told me actually the story when we worked together, she told me the story about how she got involved in, in all the wrestling. So on a side note, I'll tell that story because I was interested and I asked her about it. She said that she was on an airplane and Captain Lou was on the plane and then they didn't know each other and they started talking and Captain Lou started telling her about wrestling and they struck up a friendship and that's how the whole thing happened is her meeting Captain Lou Albano on a, on a plane. Yeah, uh, and she, was, she was on TV. <laughs> she did the music video uh, for the Goonies, which had all the wrestlers and she's still not in the Hall of Fame yet. I think they want to get her into the Hall of Fame for wrestling. <laughs> oh, that'd be incredible. That was such a cool era you know that just a, a i'd say maybe the golden age of wrestling maybe i mean no, you may disagree sure. but for me it's the golden era um so we i first talked to her manager and that went really well her manager's really cool and then um she had her friend michael lago who's a super famous a and r guy uh he's got a documentary out and has a book coming out. Definitely check out Michael's uh, documentary. It's really cool. It's called who the F is that guy? <laughs> Michael Lago. Uh, highly recommended. He, uh, he signed Metallica just had wow. huge career. Yeah. So, you know, talk to Michael and uh, he and I really hit it off. And then, then finally after making it through those first two gatekeepers, I ended up, finally talking to Cindy and her and I really hit it off too. And I just thought she was really down to earth, really cool. You know, she was telling me about the record she wanted to make. And I thought it made, you know, I thought Cindy doing a Memphis blues record was, uh, was a great concept. And, you know, she's never going to do anything. She's going to do it her way. Like anything that Cindy Lauper does is going to be done it's going to be different and it's going to be done. It's going to be Cindy's way. And I mean that in like the best way she's got, you know, she's very true to herself. She's very true to her art and she works super hard at what she does. And she worked really hard to make it a great record. And she came to Memphis and, um, you know, we wanted to have like a lot of different guests on the record and I didn't want it to be one of these records that you listen to. It's got a bunch of guests on it and you can tell that, everybody just kind of phoned in their part. Like I wanted, I'm like, if there's going to be guests on the record, they need to come and be in the studio when we record it. So there's this, it captures kind of the magic of everyone in the room together. And, and fortunately she was totally on board with doing it that way. The label was on board with doing it that way. And I think it made for a more special record. And uh, we had some really killer guests on there um, in particularly, uh, the great New Orleans producer, songwriter, pianist, Alan Toussaint was, Ooh, yes. was part of the record. 
And uh, he's one of my biggest influences. Um, I've always been, even before I knew, even before I knew who he was, I was like really inspired by him. I always, you know, love the meters, always love like Lee Dorsey, all the New Orleans R&B hits. And they always had this sound with this big bottom end and this really funky piano. And, you know, eventually I started to do some more research and I figured out like, man, this guy, Alan Toussaint, kind of the, his name is on every New Orleans record. Like he was the guy. And so to get to like work with him, and he's a, he was a magical person, you know, he's a kind of guy, he, he like walked in a room and the room, everything kind of starts to change when he's in the room in a really magical way. So he, he was just a really sweetheart of a guy, really special person. So it's really special to get to work with him. Um, but the record, it's called Memphis Blues, Cindy Lauper. Um, I'm really proud of it. It was nominated for a Grammy didn't win, but it was still an honor for it to be nominated. And just the, just to get to work with Cindy to have that, she's just really cool. And I'm a, a, you know, always been a big fan. So it was, that was really a special project to be part of. That, that is cool. And, you know, moving on, I just want to ask, you know, one of the coolest filmmakers, not just in characters and storytelling, but also in the relationship to music with movies like Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, and Dolomite Is My Name. Craig Brewer, the film director, how did y'all team up? How did y'all meet? What was that like? Who introduced who? There's a, um, there's a Memphis has this sort of, has this independent filmmaking scene that, uh, you know, I'm not sure how, where people are outside of Memphis about it, but they're, the, the music scene, the art scene, and the film scenes here really meld together. It's, you know, Memphis is kind of a medium-sized city, and so if you're involved in the sort of any of the arts, you pretty much cross over with people, and that's one of the, that's one of the things I really like about it, um, is how it all kind of blends together, but um there's a filmmaker here. His name is John Michael McCarthy and he's done quite a few, you know, really super low budget independent films for the past, you know, 25 or so years. And there was one in particular called Teenage Tupelo. And the very first original score I ever did was with my band Impala. We did the score for Mike McCarthy's film Teenage Tupelo. And, um, it's, you know, it's really cool. Like it was shot on black and white, uh, 16 millimeter. I think it was 16 or eight. I can't remember, but it's, you know, has a super cool look. Um, we recorded it at that studio, uh, Sam Phillips recording with that. I was talking about with Roland James. And I remember we, uh, we had a television and a VCR on a cart in the middle of the studio and we had the film on a VHS tape and that's how we scored it. We would like, we had some of the music written already, but then half of it we had written already and the other half was improvised. So we'd put the v, the tape and the VCR and like cue it up to the scenes and start recording while we watched it. And that's how we scored it. Um, but um, that was, you know, and I think like 1995 or 96, I can't quite remember when it was, but it was around sometime in the mid nineties when we did that. And, uh, 
go forward to the early 2000s and uh, I start, there's a really killer film festival in Memphis called the Indie Memphis Festival. And if you guys ever have a chance to come, I highly recommend it. It's always in October and it just gets better and better every year. Um, it's, you know, they have filmmakers from all over the world that come, but they also have a focus on Memphis filmmakers. And every year, you know, there's filmmakers here who, you know, they work the entire year just to have something in the Indie Memphis Festival. I mean, that's, it's a, it's a really big deal for filmmakers here. Um, I don't quite remember what year it was, but it, I know it was the early 2000s. Um, Craig uh, and his family, they were Craig, you know, with the help of his family, they made this uh, digital feature called the poor and hungry. Craig paid for it on credit cards. Um, he used all of his friends and family to, to be part of it. And uh, he, he shot it on DV, which at the time that was pretty new. Like it was, that was people still kind of looked at film like, well, if you're not shooting on a film, it's not real. Like digital was still kind of had, there was still doubts. People had doubts if you could like make a great film on digital. And I think Craig with the poor and hungry kind of proved that the medium doesn't really matter. You know, he, uh, he, he made this, he made the poor and hungry. It was like a sensation, you know, it started off in Memphis. It like won the indie Memphis film festival. It was like front page news. Everybody was talking about it. People couldn't believe that someone really kind of pretty much an unknown guy in Memphis made this really, really great film himself with a digital video camera editing it himself on a computer. Um, it was, it was a big deal and everyone was like super impressed and he ended up going to the Hollywood film festival and it was entered into that and he won best digital feature for it. Um, but it was around that time um, I was at a party one night and uh, I'd just seen it and I was super impressed by it. And Craig was there and I'd never met Craig before and someone introduced us and I was telling him how much I loved his film and how impressed I was with it. And he was telling me how much he loved the score that Impala did for teenage Tupelo. And Craig was really inspired by Mike McCarthy and, they still collaborate some to this day, but, uh, you know, Craig was, you know, really inspired by Mike, how he had financed his own films and made these independent films. And it really inspired Craig to do the same. And, uh, but the night that we met at this party, you know, we're telling each other how much we liked each other's work. And, um, and he said, you know, I've got, uh, my next project is about this, pimp who wants to be a rapper and it's called hustle and flow and he, he you know craig is such a great storyteller i mean that's obvious from his work but even just talking to him in person just having a normal conversation with craig he's one of the best storytellers i've ever met or that i know and he was he was telling me all the you know about this script and about the story of hustle and flow and his concept for it and i'm like man this sounds incredible and he said, would you be interested in doing the music? I'm like, yeah, definitely. I definitely would. Because I really, you know, I'd gotten a little taste of scoring when 
Impala did Teenage Tupelo, but I wanted to do more. And that was one of the things, one of my goals in life was to be a composer for film and television and, you know, visual media. And I'd already had some success in licensing, but I hadn't done a lot of original scores at that time. So um, a week later, he came over to my place and he brought, dropped the script off and we talked for a little while. I read the script and thought it was amazing and called him. I said, man, this script is so good. This is such a great story. This is going to be such a great film. And at that time, I think I assumed sort of that it was going to be similar to The Poor and Hungry as far as the production goes. I just sort, I kind of thought, well, it'll be probably, you know, not quite as small of a production as The Poor and Hungry was, but maybe just like one step up. I, you know, I just didn't, I knew it would be successful, but I thought it would be successful in the same way The Poor and Hungry was. I had no idea that it would go on to be I knew it would be successful, but I never had any idea or that it would ever be as successful as it was. But that, when that happened, he gave me the script. That was like sometime in the early 2000s, and it took like another five years for it to actually get made. Um, he, when he won the Best Digital Feature at the Hollywood, Hollywood Film Festival, he met this producer named Stephanie Elaine, and she had worked at Columbia. She had worked with... Uh, she'd greenlit boys in the hood at Columbia and she'd done, she's had a phenomenal career, but Stephanie um, at that time was, I think she'd left Columbia and she was an independent producer looking for projects and her and Craig teamed up. So every couple of months, Craig would get in touch with me and say, Hey man, you know, get ready. Cause get ready to work. Cause Stephanie and I have a meeting at, you know, such and such studio next week, I'm going out to LA and we think it's finally going to get, get greenlit. So get ready to work. I'm like, Hey man, I'm here. I'm ready. Whenever you guys are ready, I'm ready. And for five years, he would go out to LA, have a meeting. And then he would come back kind of dejected, like, man, you know, they, I thought it was going to work out this time, but the studio, they, you know, wanted to change this or they want to change that, or there were, you know, there were all these, always this compromise that got presented and they stayed true to what their vision was. And they'd be like, no, no, thank you. You know, we're going to, we want to make it the way we want to make it. So that went on for five years and I, they just finally got to a point where they just thought it was never going to happen. And Stephanie, um, when she was at Columbia Pictures, John Singleton, I don't know if he graduated from USC yet or he had just graduated, but he went to Columbia to work in the mailroom. And when you, apparently the story I heard is when you applied for a job there, you had to submit some writing, you know, example of, you know, a script or something. So he submitted Boys in the Hood and Stephanie read it, said, you're not going to work in the mailroom. We're going to make your film. So... John and Stephanie, you know, had this relationship. And so she ended up, at that time, John had just done Too Fast, Too Furious. Is that the right picture? I believe You so. guys know? Yeah. Yeah. So he was like, that film was very, very successful. So he was like riding high. He had like a lot of juice at that time in Hollywood. Well, John always had a lot, of, you know, he was very well regarded in Hollywood. But at that time, he was like, kind of bulletproof in Hollywood. And, uh, he's, they, they joined up with, uh, with John 
and they went and made the same rounds at all the studios and got all the same answers. And uh, it was kind of starting to look bleak again. And Craig said that John called him up and Craig was expecting John to say, Hey man, I, you know, I tried, made my best effort, but I just can't get it to happen, which he did. But <laughs> he said, Hey, man, you know, we've gone everywhere. We've tried, we've kind of exhausted all of our options he goes, I'm going to green light this MF myself. So he, awesome. from what I understand, he took out like a second mortgage on his home, paid for the production of Hustle and Flow. And uh, the rest is history. <laughs> oh, wow. And, and, you know, that's a movie about a self-made man. I mean, one of the interesting things about uh, the music business is that no matter who you are, you, you a lot of times you've got to make it from ground zero. So you have... Terrence Howard who plays DJ, you know, creates a studio in his own, uh, in his own house. You know, they get those, uh, those drink caddies from um, the fast food restaurants and turns his, his, his house into a studio and makes it on his own steam. It's, you know, a fantastic film. Um, with all that said, you know, now that everyone is kind of siloing themselves to not being able to get to the studio, maybe can't afford studio time, um, how, how are artists or even someone like yourself, how are you dealing with, um, trying to get your music out there and, and, and be a DJ, be, be someone who's trying to do this from the ground up? You know, that's, it's interesting. And it's something that, a, you know, you, you read things and you hear things and you think like, man, you know, is the, is this stuff if you're someone starting out the day, do you have any hope? But you know, it's like every day I hear about a new artist or I hear a new artist and it just, the music always, it's like water, you know, it, it, the good music and music always and art, it always finds a way to get out there and find an audience. And of course there's people that are, um, you know, can be sadly, you know, criminally overlooked, you know, many artists are that way, but I, you know, it's still, I mean, these days you can discover so much just online. It's just, it's amazing. Now the part of it that I think concerns a lot of people is, uh, you know, the monetization of it and how, you know, you make a living doing it. Um, and that's, I think always been a challenge with music and, and art, but, um, it seems, I, I, you know, I'm hoping that people can recover from what we're all going through right now with, you know, with COVID-19 and that, um, you know, the arts don't take, you know, a massive setback and take, you know, decades to get back somewhere where it's people can su sustain themselves financially and make a living from it. It's, but I think that's always been a challenge and now maybe in one way more so, but in another way, I think that there's, uh, I think there's something happening now where people are making these videos and there are ways for people to send money, you know, online Venmo, PayPal and all that. I think that's, I think that's doing some good. I think that's helping. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> uh, it, pretty, pretty much so. But also, but somebody who's in, in, in your position, you know, if you can't get to Ardent, if you can't get to Royal, how, how are you dealing with this? And um, maybe do you have any advice for someone who is just getting started? 
Well, I do. Um, as I mentioned early, earlier in the interview, one of the things I'm doing during this time of being quarantined is working a lot on getting my space here in my house set up to, to do more recording in. I had it before where I could do some basic things, but I'm like setting it up now where if I have to record an entire record here or a score here, I can, I have that capability. Um, and I would suggest anyone that, you know, does music or composing is, uh, learn as much as you can about, uh, about how to record your own music. And that's something I did early, early on. I started off with a four track cassette recorder and, uh, that was the best thing I ever did was, uh, was to learn how to record my own bands and my own demos and my own music. And, uh, I think that's especially now when we're all quarantining at home. I mean, it's so valuable to be able to record yourself, record your music and the, where technology is now with, with everything. I mean, it's come such digital recording has come such a long way and you can get some really amazing results, um, without, you know, on a smaller budget, if you, you know, to record yourself, I, um, I'm not endorsed by them at all. So this is, uh, I'm, you know, I don't have any financial reason to mention them, but I, um, I've come to embrace the universal audio world of, uh, interfaces and software. And I've gotten results with, with their interfaces and with their plugins that, I mean, I get with using that at home, I feel like I get similar results as what I do in my studio, my big studio with tons of vintage gear. Well, if you can bring maybe a, a parallel to it, you know, you know, Craig first got some notoriety based on how his story hit the world with very meager means. You know, he was able to do this with, uh, with, with no production value. Conversely, you know, you can have all the equipment or mixing boards in the world, but if, I guess it comes down to the music and the talent behind it. It'll still ring through and ring true depending on whether it's, you know, high dollar produced or produced in your bathroom. So I guess it's more of a statement than a question. I would completely agree with that. And that's, um, I think that that could be said universally, but I, I think that's one of the, that's sort of one of the Memphis a lot of the a lot of Memphis production kind of has that kind of feel to it where it's more live spontaneous more about the performance and less about how it's captured or the technical part of it even though you know the technical part is important and there's a history of really great technical work being done in Memphis and recording but it's uh it's kind of the Sam Phillips uh production philosophy is uh you know, capture the feel more than, you know, the feel is the most important part of it. I want to talk about the type of research that you immerse yourself into or kind of like the cool things you get to witness when doing music for the films that you've done, such as Hustle and Flow, Black Snake, Moan, and Dolomite is my name because, you know, with Hustle and Flow, you have the uh, some of the hip hop industry with Black Snake Moan, you know, I just got the R.L. Burnside feeling all over and that guy is something else. And I, I love him dearly in his music. And then Dolomite is my name with 
all of that, you know, the black exploitation and with Rudy Ray Moore and his music, what, uh, what archives did you get to go through? What uh, did you get to do interviews with family members or people doing these films and doing the music for that? <clears throat> that's, you know, that's one of the really cool things about working on films is that you get completely 110% immersed into these worlds. And it's kind of what you eat, breathe, sleep for six months, a year, maybe even longer. Um, and all those films you mentioned that I've worked on, each one of them is it's on you know, unique world that I go and live in. Um, one of my biggest influences in film music is Quincy Jones. Um, and another huge influence is uh, Henry Mancini. And what I like about a lot of their work is that when you see a film that they scored, in particular in the heat of the night, Quincy Jones, uh, he did the original score, but then when the characters are in a car driving or in a cafe or restaurant or bar, the songs that are being played, the source music, that's also something that Quincy wrote, produced. So it creates um, this whole musical world where everything is part of this whole world and all fits together. Henry Mancini, very similar. You know, most of the things that he scored, he would do the original score, but also the other, you know, this, all the source music was also produced by him. So it's just this total immersion in this musical world. And, you know, a contemporary person who I feel like does that to a degree is T-Bone Burnett. A lot of his, the films he works on, it's this complete musical world that he's created. Um, and that's, when I, that's the way I like to approach things. Uh, I like for it to all feel like it's part of the same world. Um, so in the case of hustle and flow, you know, I was getting to hang out with the guys in three, six mafia and Al Capone. And I didn't work on the, uh, all the songs, all the rap songs on camera stuff. I was there and kind of consulted on, you know, I, I told Craig in the beginning, like, man, you got to have an MPC. Like that's the one piece of equipment that DJ has to have. He's got to have a, an MPC. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't write any of those songs. I wasn't involved in the production of them, but I was hanging around when that stuff was going down. And there were so many, you know, amazing, cool people in that musical world that were around during the, the filming of Hustle and Flow. And I was, I was going to the set a lot and I was getting dailies and, you know, I was, I was writing to dailies, which is unusual, but a lot of my demos, you know, and they ended up editing to my demos in some cases for some scenes because Craig knew what he wanted even before he shot it and was telling me what he wanted it to sound like. And I would make things. And then when he and Billy Fox would edit, they would edit to my demos. But, um, and in the case of black snake moan, and that was really unique. Um, cause I started working with Craig on that you know, before they ever shot a single frame because we had to go and uh, record, we had to go and produce the pre-records, which, um, you know, were the songs that Samuel L. Jackson and Christina Ricci were doing on camera. And that was a really amazing process because Sam Jackson came to Memphis and Craig and Sam and I 
got in a car and you know, we, we went to Mississippi on a road trip and I set up like a lot of meetings on the way. We went down to uh, fat possum records in Oxford, Mississippi, and we had Sam Jackson jam with uh, Cedric Burnside and Kenny Brown, who were RL Burnside's band. We went to Clarksdale, Mississippi and hung out with big Jack Johnson. Um, and then, uh, you know, we, it was just this amazing road trip that we went on and um, kind of exchanged ideas about, you know, Sam Jackson's character. And on that trip, you know, we saw him like developing this character that ended up being, you know, Lazarus that he portrayed in the film. Um, and then we went in the studio and uh, recorded, recorded all the songs that he performed on camera and he put a vocal down, but so, but he redid, he redid the vocals. Sam Jackson redid the vocals on camera when they filmed the scene. So it was this whole pro. And the other part of it that was cool is we had to like figure out the technical part of it and figure out, well, how is Sam Jackson, you know, how do you do these songs on camera where they're authentic and where the hands, you know, were in the right place and it's all synced up there was a lot of technical, you know, work that went into pulling that off where it was as authentic as possible. And I'm very, very happy with the results. Um, the music editor who worked with us on that is a great, great music editor who's now retired. Her name is Bunny Andrews. Look her up on IMDB. She's a, she's a badass. but, uh, she did such a great job working with us to make sure that, it was all synced up as much as possible. But, um, but that, you know, that North Mississippi hill country blues world, um, that was a world that musically I was already familiar with. Um, you know, some of my first exposure to just really great music was going to blues festivals in Mississippi. You know, there's always, you know, in the spring and summer, fall, there's always every weekend, there's a blues festival somewhere in Mississippi. And I was so hungry for music and I, I love the blues. I, and I would go and I saw so many amazing artists, uh, you know, in the late eighties and nineties, uh, at these blues festivals. So I was already, you know, pretty familiar with that world. And, um, but that, it was really amazing to kind of live in that North Mississippi hill country blues world working on black snake moan and the dolomite is my name. You know, that was a little bit of a different, uh, process working on that than hustle and flow and black snake moan because both hustle and flow and black snake moan, I'd been involved with, you know, at the script level, but with dolomite is my name, they didn't bring me on until it was already almost a final cut. And, um, uh, I didn't have much time to do it, but that world, you know, the black exploitation world, it, you know, that's a genre that I'm a big fan of. I've seen, you know, I've, I'm such a rabid fan of that genre. I've seen many, many of those films and numerous times and like really studied the music and a big fan of a lot of the a lot of those soundtracks and I've really studied that, that genre a lot. So I was pretty familiar with it. Um, and you know, there's some of the music in it. I mean, it's definitely, you know, black exploitation, but then there's, you know, there's some other influences in there too. I mean, 
one composer I would say I was really inspired by uh, for the score is Lalo Schifrin. So, you know, the Dirty Harry scores, big influence always since I was a kid. Um, Enter the Dragon, huge, you know, huge influence. Um, I'm a, you know, product of the 70s. So, you know, at a young age, I really kind of, you know, keyed into certain, I don't know, the 70s were just a real big, you know, I was a kid in the seventies and so influenced by so many things that I saw in the seventies. So that sound is sort of part of me. (laughs) So it was a world that I'm kind of, you know, I'm just familiar with. And I know. I love everything you said. And I just, you know, going back to black snake moan, I mean, I just want to hear more about this, you know, this, this road trip and what the playlist was, but I just loved hearing, you know, those songs that, um, you put in the film like Staggerly and Bird Without a Feather. I just think those are just so significant and important songs, I think, in the blues community. And I love them, and I think it was done perfectly in there. Well, the music in Black Snake Moan and the music, you know, everything that I've ever done with Craig has been a 100% collaborative effort. Craig is a extremely, extremely musical person. I've told him on numerous occasions, uh, I'm like, man, you know, you bring the best out of me. And that's why he's such a great director because he, he brings the best out of people. He definitely brings the best out of me, but, uh, you know, bird without a feather. That was, uh, that was a song Craig brought in, you know, that was, that was his suggestion to use that song. That was one that really kind of conveyed what he was looking for. And stagger Lee, um, man, I mean, I did, looking back on it, man, I did, I did some deep research on Black Snake Moan. I mean, I, I really worked a lot to make sure it was right. And I started thinking about like Sam Jackson and his career and kind of his style and what he's kind of known for. Um, and then I starting to find blues songs that to me felt like him and, and the type characters he plays and I thought man we need at least one thing where he's kind of like doing the dozens stagger Lee and the other thing about that is to me that also kind of tied into hustle and flow because that style the dozens is what kind of led into uh rap so to me the musically the things I've done with Craig it's all kind of come full circle so you've got you know, the blues and the dozens, you got Stagger Lee and that kind of evolved into what Rudy Ray Moore does. And then that evolves into the rapping and hustle and flow. So it all, it's all kind of connected and, you know, in a way through that. So um, I was really proud of how Stagger Lee came off and, and what Sam Jackson did with it. I thought it was perfect. And, you know, I, I worked it up and I had kind of a rough, concept for the the story i mean that's been done by a million people a million different ways and he really did it his own way and he turned it he made it into exactly exactly how what i'd hope that it would turn into and and like you know going on that road trip was there like a certain playlist or song y'all would listen to constantly 
a lot of R.L. Burnside and a lot of Fat Possum records. You know, Fat Possum was a, you know, that all that North, North Mississippi blues catalog that they produced. That was, you know, a major, major inspiration for that film and for all the music. Um, also listened to a lot of uh, Jelly Roll Kings, which is this really famous. Well, I don't know how famous they are, but they're famous to me. They're, they were this really legendary uh, group in, from Clarksdale, Mississippi. It was this harmonica player, singer named Frank Frost, um, this guitar player named Big Jack Johnson who played uh, Catfish Blues on that soundtrack. He's the guitar player on that. And uh, they were just an incredible uh, group. They did about three albums. Uh, they started off in the 60s. So they did like an album in the 60s. They did one in the 80s and they did one in the 90s. So they were around for decades, but only did like three albums. But the Jelly Roll Kings, that was a big inspiration. Um, and I'd have to go back and kind of dig through my archives. I know I've got some playlists, <laughs> but it's been, uh, I think that was about 15 years ago. So oh my, my memory <laughs> are we that old now? <laughs> um, when you have a project and uh, whether you know the director or whether it's uh, completely new to you, do you ever find yourself out of your comfort zone? What do you think has been you know, the biggest challenge that you've had to take on, whether it was Hustle and Flow, Black Snake Moan, or um, probably not Dolomite because you said your 70s are in your blood, but um, what's been the biggest sort of up, up, um, learning curve for you. It, it may have been, um, it may have been hustle and flow because that was my first one, you know, just the learning curve of like going through the whole process for the first time. Um, but Craig, Craig was also going through the process for the first time. There were a lot of people on hustle and flow that were kind of, you know, they were kind of like doing something, a lot of people that worked on that had all worked in film and worked on projects, but a lot of people involved in it, it was kind of the thing that they were doing where they were like maybe going up a, up a step, you know? And so for a lot of people, people had experience, but a, a lot of the people working on that were doing roles for the first time, various things. Um, but you know, John Singleton and Stephanie Lane were great producers and gave everyone their freedom to to do what they wanted to do and help kind of shepherd everyone and, you know, kept, you know, help keep everything between the lines. Um, but I think that was probably also in flow was the most challenging thing because it was just a whole new, a whole new world. Like I'd never worked in a, in, in, initially it wasn't a studio picture, but, you know, it was the closest thing I'd ever worked on a studio picture. And then Paramount, when they picked it up, all of a sudden, you know, we were dealing with the studio and, you know, all the politics with the film studio and all the departments and getting things done. And that was, you know, that was a whole new experience for me. Um, yeah, that, that was, I would say that. And then with uh, Black Snake Moan, that was a studio picture. So then working you know, producing, you know, a soundtrack and doing a score for a studio picture for the first time. There was a learning curve involved in that. Dolomite, you know, that it, I'd, um, 
I kind of, I don't know the, the challenge, the challenge on Dolomite is that I didn't have a lot of time. It was very, it was a very fast turnaround, which in a way, I think having that pressure, I think that kind of can work in your favor creatively sometimes uh, to have that pressure and you just, you know, you, you're just kind of like in the zone and you, you get it, you get the work done. Um, but I think overall, I think probably hustle and flow, just doing it all for the first time was a big challenge, but I had other people with me going through the process who it was also their first time, Craig. I mean, he, it was his first time to direct something that, you know, since the poor and hungry and he, you know, he was essentially producing that himself. So we kind of went through everything together. Well, with your short time frame on Dolomite is my name. I know the reason that some of the cue lengths are dictated by the scenes or, you know, how much you want to carry over into the next scene, but are there longer tracks? Are there, was there anything about the movie that kept you from just, you know, getting your groove on for 15 minutes, like um, Isaac Hayes did and the shaft score, like do your thing. That's a, that's a long track. <laughs> well, you know, with the, the, sh- the shaft score or the soundtrack album, what's interesting about that is if you listen to the, if you listen to the film versions and you listen to soundtrack versions are different. So they had Isaac had like a stripped down group who recorded the score for the film at MGM in Hollywood. And then after that, they came back and like fleshed out the songs and made like album length arrangements and re-recorded it. So the soundtrack album is actually different than what's in the film. Um, Unfortunately, you know, we had so much music to record in such a small amount of time. I mean, I just, I just kind of did what I needed to do. And, and, you know, a couple of times I thought, man, it'd be cool to come back and, you know, make some longer arrangements of some of these cues and make special versions for the soundtrack. But, you know, just in this era, there's just not, unfortunately, it's not 1972 and, it's not stacks records and it just wasn't possible to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, what's, you know, I don't know if we were going to get into this, but what's really special to me about the Dolomite is my name score is that we have three of the musicians who played on Isaac Hayes's scores, uh, on the soundtrack, um, Willie Hall, Michael Tolls and Lester Snell who played on shaft truck turner and tough guys they are all on the dolomite is my name score that that is awesome i own all of those albums too (laughs) they're so good and i guess you know coming off of dolomite is my name and now it's being released in this really cool uh album this record album collection uh how do you feel about that do you you love it Do do you love listening to it Oh, I'm, I couldn't be happier about it. I'm, I don't actually don't, haven't received any copies of it yet. They're on, they're in the mail. Uh, and I have a test pressing of it that Mondo sent. And when I put that test pressing on and played it, it sounded incredible. It's, um, the, you know, that the music, the cues and the music coming off the vinyl to me sounds closest to what it sounded like in the room when we recorded it it sounds more like what it sounds like in my head coming off the vinyl than 
you know, any other format I've heard it in. Um, just the packaging is amazing. Um, you know, I saw a photo online that someone put up, you know, it was Mark, it was actually your review. Uh, I saw the, uh, I saw the packaging and on, it was, I don't, this is really random, but I thought it was like so cool that the back, that little in the, the part, the paper part on the outside on the back had the little ad for the, uh, breaking bad score. Yeah. Uh, I think was it El Camino, uh, uh the vinyl. Cor- correct. Yeah. They, they like to tease yeah. the latest release or the upcoming releases on the back of the OB strip. So yeah, that's a nice little, uh, Easter egg for people when they buy something. I'm such a huge fan of the whole breaking bad world that in the, the score and all the music is so great. And that, and all the shows and like having that little ad on the back for the score for El Camino. I was like, man, it's awesome. <laughs> I was so you're, excited. You're connected. And I, I'm curious. So you don't, ha- you just have a test pressing. I think our friend Mark is the only person in the world to have a copy of Dolomite is my name on vinyl right now, because none of us have it. <laughs> Craig, Craig Brewer put up a photo on Instagram the other day of, of some copies. So I think he, I don't know if he ordered it or they sent him some, but he's, he's got a couple copies of it. Okay. But okay. You guys are the only people I know who have it. It's like, I don't, I want a copy. I yeah, don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I hear they're, you know, they're shipping out next week and, uh, you know, Mondo's going to have them, you know, they're going to have them next week. So they're out there and I say everybody should, should get it quick because I've I've never had so many people ask me about a record that I've worked on. People really want this this record, and I think I think they're going to go quick. Well, because it has such a fun and energetic sound to it, you have the Craig Robinson singing, and then you have kind of like the musical comedy stylings of Eddie in it, and then your fantastic score. It just it all is like one perfect storm of like fantasticness i think and i think this i'm just chomping at the bit to get this so much me too and you know all the guys who played on it they keep every time they see something about the vinyl online you know they get in touch with me hey man do you have these yet you know when am i getting when am i going to get my copy um it's craig it's mark's way yeah everybody come to my house we'll have a listening party <laughs> Well, actually, I'm, I'm curious about something because, um, you know, Mondo usually approaches the artists a, a good amount of time before they're actually released because there's a whole lot of licensing and hurdles they have to go through. But I noticed that what is on the vinyl is not the entire Dolomite Is My Name soundtrack. There's a, a Bow Keys. There's two extra tracks, if, uh, if my math is right. There's even a Bow Keys um, track that didn't make the vinyl. So how did the selection process work for this release? Well, as you guys may or may not know, with vinyl, the be- the shorter the sides are, the better it sounds. So you really don't want to get over 20 minutes a side or, you know, you start having to bring the, the levels down. You have to start bringing the bass down. It's kind of a challenge to, to cut uh, a lacquer when it gets over 20 minutes. So with those two licensed songs, there was a song by uh, Blind Mississippi Morris and a Bo Key song that were licensed for the film that are on the digital version of the soundtrack. If you go to Spotify or iTunes, it's there. And, um, you know, we just, with those two songs, it made the soundtrack over 20 minutes aside. And also 
we just felt it would be more appropriate for the soundtrack to be more like an old school soundtrack where it's just the music that was specifically produced for the film and it wasn't like any of the licensed songs. So uh, it's the original songs that were produced for, you know, the Craig Robinson and uh, Eddie Murphy tracks that they produced for the, uh, for the film, which I didn't do those. And then my score. So it's, it's, it's just the, it's just the, you know, you can get those other two songs in other places. We wanted this to be special and really just be purely the songs that were produced for the soundtrack. Okay. Well, I have a, a follow-up question to that. So th- there's a lot, there's a lot of mean guitar lyrics. There's uh, licks that whatever you want to call it. There's guitar motifs. There's some harmonica, there's some woodwinds. Um, can you break down, I, I believe it's the um, sell it. I might not have the, the track right, but there's a. So what number of uh, instruments make that sound? And can you, can you break that down for us? I'm going to, I'm going to pull this up real quick and, and listen to it. Yes. <laughs> can you guys hear this or is it just on my side? Okay. I just listened to it. So that's actually not a guitar that's doing that. That is a clavinet with a wah-wah. Okay. So explain and, to the kids at home. Uh, Stevie wonder superstition. That's, that's the sound of a, of a clavinet. Yeah. And, uh, and listening to all the, you know, kind of taking a deep dive into the black exploitation era soundtracks. Um, the one instrument that just besides the Wawa, the one other instrument that just was everywhere was a clavinet. I mean, it was just the clavinet was on everything. And, um, the actual the, the scores for the Rudy Ray Moore films, you know, Dolomite, The Human Tornado, um, you know, those some of those scores, some pieces, some of the cues are used in Dolomite is my name. So I, you know, like I was talking about earlier, how I like for things to be this one cohesive musical world. I felt like I had to kind of reach into you know, kind of the sound of those original Rudy Ray Moore film scores and, and use elements from those. And those were super clavinet heavy. So the clavinet is like a big instrument in, in my score for this film. And it's used to kind of tied in with those original Rudy Ray Moore scores. But in that particular cue, sell it, that that's a clavinet with a wah-wah. And a clavinet is like a keyboard instrument with strings, um, almost like a guitar. It's, it has a very guitar like sound. Um, but you, but it's played with keys like a keyboard. That's, that's fascinating. I I like talking to musicians who find these, you know, that's an actual instrument as opposed to banging a spoon against the windowsill or something like that to create something. But it's just, it's all these nebulous things that we hear. It's your vernacular and it's just cool to like put these things together and have a, a visual image of what's happening. So um, now real quick, can in phone call, there's a woodwind. I don't know if it's a clarinet. I don't think it's a flute. It has kind of like a reverb on it. It's like someone's 
playing it laboredly. I don't know. How do you produce that sound? So um, I'm giving away all my secrets today. Oh. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. So that's a, uh, that's an alto flute. And when we mixed it, I put a little tape delay on it. It has okay. uh, another, another element of the kind of seventies, you know, recordings and is, um, is tape delay. So I, that was something that I used quite a bit in, in mixing and recording the, the score was uh, tape delay. Awesome. That's cool. Uh, so, you know, you're in this, you've been in this music industry for so long. I'm curious what, well, I'm, I, I'm fascinated. I want to know what the most curious, the most bizarre recording on vinyl, CD, tape, or MP3 that you have? Not necessarily anything that I've made, just something that I own. Correct. That's very, that's a hard one. Um, you know, from having a studio over the years, you know, I've ended up with outtakes of things um, that are cool to me and like really unique that probably, you know, that no one else would have. Um, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, you know, going back to the Cindy Lauper record we were talking about. The first day that Alan Toussaint came in the studio, he started like just jamming with the guys in the band, which were, you know, Howard Grimes and Leroy Hodges from the high rhythm section and Charles Skip Pitts, who was Isaac Hayes's guitarist who played the wah-wah part on Shaft and uh, Lester Snell, who played with Isaac Hayes, who's also playing on the Dolomite Is My Name score. Um... Alan came in and started playing piano, just kind of improvising and like going through a bunch of songs. And those guys just kind of fell in and started jamming with him and I hit record. And so I have like about an hour and a half of just Alan Toussaint with, you know, members of Isaac Hayes's hot buttered soul and the high rhythm section just jamming. So that's, you know, that's special and unique. And I don't, I would probably say that. No, oh, that is that is amazing. That blows my Leonard Nimoy Legend of Bilbo Baggins album right out of the water. <laughs> well, you know, and I'm you know, I'm a pretty big record collector, so I mean I do if I dug deep into my record collection, uh, you know, I have you know, some obscure, you know, Memphis soul funk instrumentals from the sixties that they know that are pretty special to me and pretty unique. Um, in particular, uh, there was this, uh, I don't know. I have, I have like some, you know, obscure Memphis, uh, Saul and Funk 45s that, that are real special to me and really unique. Now when you're go, cause both Mark and I, since we live in the same city and we're, we're very, very good friends. We love to visit, even when we're out of town, the local record store. Uh, that have been popping up for the last several years and we just love going there and crate digging. So what do you mm -hmm. look for when you crate dig and what are some of the rare gems and finds you've found in Memphis or somewhere else? Well, I, I definitely, you know what, I, I tour quite a bit. 
um, with Don Bryant and the Bow Keys. We, you know, tour all over the world. And I'm also, you know, in Los Angeles fairly often working. And, uh, you know, I, every time I'm in a new town or in a place I've been to before, um, I mean, I'm always hitting the record shops. I'm always digging through vinyl. Um, there's a lot of great shops out there. I mean, Dusty Groove in Chicago is one of my favorites to go to. Um, in Memphis, there's two excellent stores, Goner Records and Shangri-La Records. And I actually used to work at Shangri-La Records back in the 90s. Um, you know, I'm always looking for obscure Memphis records that I don't have. Um, you know, obscure New Orleans R&B from the 50s and 60s. Uh, always looking for soundtracks that I don't have. Um, I'm usually, whichever city I'm in, I'm usually looking for like specific records from that city. Um, you know, when I'm in Detroit, you know, I'll go to shops there and there's always like, there's always records in Detroit on these small labels that will like turn up there that you don't ever really see anywhere else. The same goes for, you know, pretty much every city, you know, they have, every city's got that one or two vinyl shops and there's kind of like the local delicacies, you know, it's kind of like going to a different city that's known for particular food. Well, there's also, you know, there's these particular rare records that tend to pop up where they were pressed. Um, you know, where I, when I'm down in Texas, you know, where you guys live, I'm usually looking for like anything on the Duke Peacock label that I don't have. I'm a really big fan of that label, which was, uh, you know, based down in uh, San Antonio, I believe, or Houston. Yeah, Houston, Duke Peacock. And uh, I'm always looking for those records down in Texas. Nice, nice. Yeah, that's, I, I'm pretty much the same way. If I go somewhere and there's usually at some of the mom and pop record stores, they have like the section of like the local artists or in that have like been around forever. And I love looking through those and just seeing like, hmm, this looks like I will love this forever. <laughs> when I'm in LA, I'm, you know, always go to Amoeba and uh, other shops too, but I love that Amoeba store out there in LA. And I'm always looking for soundtracks out there. You know, there's more of them there because that's where they, a lot of them came from. So I'm always looking for soundtrack albums. That's what we are too. So Mark and I are huge into soundtracks and there's a couple places in town that actually have full on crazy bins and bins and bins worth of soundtracks. And we're always kind of on the cusp of, uh, or at least I am for sci-fi and horror as well as Western stuff and just things that maybe Varez Sarah band just released to radio stations and whatnot. So it's been fun over the years to try to find original copies of all the old Varez Sarah band uh, albums because I love soundtracks. I think there's something about the score that I can listen to without watching the movie and it immerses myself into that world just listening to it. And then just some of the songs that were created for the film. And I just love that aspect of it. A lot like Dolomite is my name. So <laughs> we've, come, we've come full circle. This is awesome. <laughs> it, 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 is, it is like that. And I, I just love that uh, part about it. Um, and so earlier on in the show, you said you're going through your Criterion collection. And we're both fans of the Criterion collection. It's like the Neiman Marcus of home video. Uh, what... Uh, 
what, what are you watching? What are your Criterion Collection picks? I have gotten very, very into all of the samurai films, all the Japanese samurai films. Oh, Kurosawa, um, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, some of them I, I've seen, you know, over the years, but I've found this whole world of them in the Criterion Collection that I had not seen. And uh, I'm just, I, I don't know. It's just amazing. I mean, I just can't get enough of them right now. Everything about them, the production, the acting, the stories, the music, you know, I just really, and the, uh, you know, also the, the 60s gangster, Japanese gangster films. I've seen some of them, but I'm finding, I'm discovering some in the Criterion Collection that I'd, I'd never seen before. Nice. Might, might I recommend, if you haven't seen it yet, Onibaba? I haven't seen it. I'll look for it. Check it out. It is, uh, I, I recently did a, a Criterion Horror list. 10 list and Onibaba is one of them on the criterion and it's about a duo of women who kill samurais and take their stuff. <laughs> it's, wow. It's pretty great. Onibaba. And the artwork's amazing. I'm uh, saving it right now in my queue to, to watch there. <laughs> you, there, there. There's three. If you were ever to get away from the Kurosawa, which is kind of tough to do, uh, the three I really like are uh, Kill, Sort of Doom and uh, Three Outlaw Samurai. Those are. I watched. I watched Three Outlaw Samurai last night. Very good. <laughs> I'd never seen Lady Snowblood. I just so, saw that so. one last. Yeah, and there's a second one. I got to watch that one, but I, I couldn't. I mean, I love. I love the Kill Bill films. Big, huge Tarantino fan. And like, I'm like, man, how did I not know about Lady Snowblood? I mean, it's kind of, it's, a, you kind of have to see that, you know, with Kill Bill. It works so well together. That does. Uh, I, have you guys seen the Hanzo the Razor films? Oh, yeah. No. Yes. Not yet. <laughs> I, a friend of mine just turned me on to those. Those are, those are, those are amazing. <laughs> and, and have you have you seen any Takashi Miike stuff like Ichi the Killer or First Thirteen Blood? Assassins? Thirteen Assassins. That's it's a great samurai I've film. Seen that one a while back. I saw that one. That that's one I saw on video like back back in the day. Some you know some of these um you know were kind of out there, but then there's others that just never you know popped up at any of the video stores I went to, and just they were never on television. So I'm. That's what's the beauty of the Criterion Collection. I mean, there's like the classics that are on there that, you know, the that have been around that, you know, you kind of have access to. But then there's the stuff on there that you just never, it's kind of never been in circulation until now, at least not in the U.S. All right. Um, and I, I've, got, I've got another fun question for you. Uh, recently, I did an article on the the best music moments in film, such as, uh, you know, Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World doing Queen in the Mirthmobile, or Michael J. Fox doing Chuck Berry at the night, uh, the, the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Is there any music moments that have stuck with you in films that you just, you're inspired, you love watching, you can't stop watching? It's so many, that's a, man, that's a hard question. Um, you know, I know this is one that 
Well, I have a few. It's it's impossible to narrow it down to at least one. But uh, you know the the Ennio Morcone uh, westerns. You know uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'd say that entire film for me. You know, seeing that and hearing it when I was a kid made such a massive impression on me and inspired me to do what I'm doing now. Um, the other one, if you will allow me more than one, um, is, um, I'm totally blanking on the film. This is terrible. I'm like, oh man, give me one second. Okay. <laughs> the chase scene and bullet. Oh yes. Just the scene itself is amazing, but the way the music and the, and the way that's cut together and everything about it, that's another for me, a moment musically in film. That yeah, I love that scene. And you know, one that always sticks out with me that actually amps me up, pumps me up to listen to film scores, and that what really inspires me to create is Jerry Goldsmith's uh, score to Explorers uh, about the kids who go in the tilt world to outer space, them actually building the ship uh, with River Phoenix and Ethan Hawke. That scene of that whole orchestra coming together with that, that dun, 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 is just so magical and I love it. I love that moment. I'm putting that on the list. Yeah, so I think, I think uh, Jerry Goldsmith's Explorer's first construction, I believe, I, or it's called construction, is uh, the track. And it, I just, I love it so much. Love that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. Um, he's, he did amazing work. He did. <clears throat> and he was so, so inventive. I mean, if you listen to Gremlins outside of the film, there's sounds and sequences that you're like, what is even happening? And he even went so far as to do something crazy for the burbs where he did, he integrated squeaking dog, squeaking dogs, uh, balls and then dog barks and stuff like that. So, you know, it works in the film, but taken out, you're like, what am I listening to? What is so inventive. He he was almost like the Tom Waits of the film score, just using crazy (laughs) instruments. He used he used tape delay quite a bit. Uh, Quincy Jones scores have a lot of really cool use of tape delay as well. You know, it's so funny. You mentioned the trying to get all into the world. This is more of a like Bernard Herrmann, um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock type thing. But I was watching Heartburn, which was a Mike Nichols movie based on Nora Ephron's novel uh, starring uh, Jack Nicholson and uh, Meryl Streep. But Carly Simon did the score and it's pretty much the, the same little motif throughout the entire film, just d- different variations based on the mood. But there's a part where Meryl Streep comes out into the street and she's talking to her friend and there's a saxophonist playing on the sidewalk. And about 30 seconds a minute into the exchange, he starts playing the tune or the theme on his saxophone. So it's kind of like, it's a kind of cheeky, kind of goofy, but it kind of like brings us, you know, the whole movie together. It's kind of cute. I love that. Um, so to round out this amazing show with you, Scott, what is next for you? Is there, are there any movies on the horizon? Is there any tours after this quarantine has lifted? What, what, what's next for you? 
well, there's a, the most, the next thing I have that I've worked on that's coming out, um, the artist that I tour with and work with a lot, Don Bryant, he has a new album coming out on June 19th on Fat Possum Records. It's called You Make Me Feel, and it was recorded um, right after we did the sessions for Dolomite Is My Name, and it has some of the same musicians, you know, some of the guys in the Bow Keys, uh, Mark Franklin, Joe Restivo, Kirk Smothers. Um, they they are in the Bow Keys and play played on Don Bryant's record. They also played on the Dolomite Is My Name score. So um, look for that record. Um, not sure when we'll be out touring again. We have a date. Uh, our next date on the calendar is actually in Texas. It's down in Austin at Antones on June the 28th. Um, not sure if we're going to be able to come do it or not. I mean, I don't know kind of where things are going to be in the world with, um, you know, the virus and us being able to go to concerts and things like that. So I'm not sure if we'll have to reschedule it or if we'll still be able to do that show, but, um, we hope to be back out on the road the next time it's uh, safe for all of us to do that. Um, and I'm, working on a solo record right now um doing the uh dolomite is my name score it um has inspired me to uh make a record of i mean essentially a solo record that's kind of uh going to be film 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 music in search of a film you know it's going to be my you know just things that inspired me that don't necessarily have to be married to an image, you know, just that, you know, my film kind of, I don't know. It's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be some of my, some of my music. And, uh, that's what I'm, that's what, what I'm working on right now. I'm writing, I'm writing for that record and writing different themes and, um, kind of figuring out what that's going to be. Not sure when that'll come out or what it's going to be called, but that's, uh, that's probably going to be my next thing after the Don Bryant record comes out is going to be some type of uh, solo project. That sounds amazing. I'm all on board. And if you make it to Austin, please let us know because that's a quick two hour drive for us. Road trip. Um, yeah. Road trip. <laughs> we get Sam yeah. Jackson to come down too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know what? This podcast has just been really amazing. I, I would just want to say fuck it and just, do away with the rest of the day, just talk with you guys for the next six hours. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Thanks it's for been, having me on. It's been great. This is the unbalanced note. Uh, we're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Um, and Scott, can you tell uh, any of the listeners if there's a place they, they can find you online, a website, a social media? Sure. You can uh, go to my website, which is, scottbomar.com which is s-c-o-t-t-b-o-m-a-r.com and uh, there's all types of information there um, information about my studio about records I've worked on I've got like a web store there where you can uh, you can buy stuff um, at some point here in the next few weeks we're going to have uh, copies of the Dolomite is my name soundtrack for sale that I'll sign for everybody and uh, those will be up there soon in the web store. 
That is great. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can get them there. Mondo Tees is selling them. Get that Dolomite Is My Name soundtrack on vinyl. You are going to be fulfilled and satisfied to the 11th degree for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, Mark, any last words? Uh, this has been an absolute trip, a joy, a treat. Scott, you are a gentleman through and through. Um, please, anyone, if you can, if you love records, if you love music, give the gift of uh, Dolomite Is My Name to yourself or loved ones and um, check out uh, Go See Talk for an excellent, thorough write-up and review of it. You need this in your life. It's the most essential album you never knew you needed. And thank you for listening. We'll be back with a new episode next week.